You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Here at the Christian Humanist Radio Network, of course, we're interested in the long conversation about what human existence entails. We know that our being has something to do with our place as the Creator's image in the temple that is the world. We have a hunch that making art situates us as analogous in some sense to the primal act of creation. And those of us who have heard the Westminster Catechism recited think that there's at least something to the the claim that our chief end is to glorify and enjoy God. But for some, starting with those claims leads not further up and further in, but into strange intellectual territory, not committed to atheism as a Bertrand Russell or a Friedrich Nietzsche would recognize it, but simply unaffiliated. Dr. Nathan Jacobs, writer and director and Basil, we'll get to that in a moment, for the new film Becoming Truly Human, sets stories of losing my affiliation next to the journey into the oldest of Christian traditions, and the intersections are fascinating. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him on the show and talk about his film. Thank you for joining us, Nathan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, before we launch into the interview, listeners, I want you to let you know that Becoming Truly Human will open in select cities starting on November 9th, and I definitely encourage you listeners to go and see it. We'll be including information and some links for finding a screen near you in the episode's show notes, so be sure to visit us at christianhumanist.org, as well as on the uh, Christian Humanist Facebook page, and you'll be able to find a screen near you where you can watch this film. But for now, let's be on with the interview. So Nathan, just so that we can get this out of the way, let's stipulate that when we say nuns on this recording, unless we specify that we mean celibate Catholic religious, (laughs) we mean those without religious affiliation. I'm getting so tired of spelling out the word nun. Okay, that felt good, that little rant. So let me ask you this. I mean, uh, I've seen a number of polls and I've also heard, you know, stories from friends of mine uh, about their journey away from specific religious affiliation into this sort of, you know, hinterlands of spirituality. Uh, What kinds of things led you towards making a film specifically about the nuns? Yeah, well, um, I am myself a former nun, right? Someone who went through this journey of affiliation and non-affiliation. And, uh, but of course, as I share in the film, uh, my own journey doesn't end there. It continues on. Uh, and ultimately lands in Eastern Orthodoxy, as you mentioned, my own story being the one that uh, that moves in that direction. And so for myself as someone who uh, looks at nuns and says, I, 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 I can identify with that, I was one of those, uh, I've always had um, my own take on what's going on with the religiously unaffiliated. And I think it differs from a lot of what I see uh, going on in the sort of just common knee-jerk reactions to the data. So my impression is that uh, when you look at, you know, 25% of the U.S. is now religiously unaffiliated, regardless of whether you dispute whether that number is accurate or not, not interested in in the accuracy of the uh, of the quantification of it. It's it's more that uh, when I look at that, what I tend to see is that uh, new atheists and um, oftentimes religiously affiliated folks have a similar reaction, uh, which is that they think, okay, the atheists are winning. People are abandoning belief in God. They're all becoming atheists. Uh, we're moving into some sort of uh, land of complete non-spirituality, materialism, whatever it may be. 
And as somebody who comes from that world, uh, I have a very different reaction to the nuns and different, very different perspective on the nuns. Um, uh, in my experience, both personally and in interacting with other religiously unaffiliated folks, uh, my impression is that very, very few of the religiously unaffiliated are actually atheists. Uh, many self-identify as spiritual. Um, they, uh, they, they see the world as in some ways guided. They believe in a higher power. Many of them believe in fate or providence. Things happen for a reason, things like that. Uh, so it's not as if they're devoid of religious beliefs. And in fact, for, for many nuns, their movement away from religion, which usually when they say that, they mean the religion of my youth. So they mean, I was raised Baptist, I'm not a Baptist anymore. Mm -hmm. Or I was raised Catholic, I'm not a Catholic anymore. Uh, but for many of them, that movement begins actually with an encounter with other religious traditions. So they began to read about Hinduism or something like that. And there was something appealing about that. And that begins the movement of questioning uh, the, the faith that they were raised in. So when I look at the nuns, I think one of the problems uh, with how they're perceived is that, first of all, it's just it's they're just perceived through this lens of there's some sort of war between the uh, the fundamentalists and the atheists and the atheists are winning, which I think is incorrect in terms of placing the nuns there. Uh, and the other thing is, and this is this is why I offer up my own story, albeit with fear and trembling, is that I think it's unfortunate that the nuns are characterized primarily by what they've walked away from. So when we call them religiously unaffiliated, they are none of the above. Uh, we've really sort of just we, we've defined them entirely by what they've walked away from. Uh, and yet when I look at the nuns and I look at my own story, it's really a movement toward something. They are looking for something. I was looking for something. Uh, it's just that they don't necessarily know what that is because they've only had one very narrow experience of religion. And they have this clear sense that they don't fit there. They want something else. They want something. It might be something deeper. It might be something that uh, offers an alternative perspective on certain topics like the problem of evil or God or whatever it may be. Uh, but they they are still moving towards something. They just don't know what that something is. And so my goal in doing this film was to offer an alternative perspective on the nuns, um, looking at the nuns and first humanizing them, changing them from mere data points uh, to people with actual stories and experiences and journeys, um, but also reframing them not so much by what they've moved away from, but what they're moving toward or what they're looking toward. And then in offering my own story alongside them, as one who is a former nun, offering what I would call sort of a long view versus a short view. The short view just says 25% are no longer um, religiously uh, affiliated. Mm -hmm. The long view, though, is the question of, so what will they be in 10, 15 years? Will they still be religiously unaffiliated? In my case, the answer was no. Mm -hmm. uh, I did ultimately find religious affiliation, and devoutly so. Uh, it just took me about 15 years <laughs> to, yeah. get, to, to get there. Um, but that's really the question is my story is put alongside theirs in order to open up the, this sort of long view uh, question of saying, well, what will they be if we extend this out and we just stop looking at what they're not presently and understand that they are people on a journey with an unknown destination? Okay. Well, I want to hear you talk a little bit about the process of casting the nuns who you did cast. So... You've definitely gathered a, a spectrum here. I mean, you know, 
Uh, Eric, who I believe is the last one you interviewed, I mean, definitely mm-hmm. reads the most East Kentucky of the crew. Sure does, yeah. Uh, but, you know, Emily, her story strikes me as representative of a number of folks I've known. You know, her, her parents tried very hard to school them in the faith, but they fell away nonetheless. And we'll talk about some of the, the, the particular interviews as we go, but what kinds of nuns were you looking for when you started to assemble this lineup? Yeah. Uh, well, fair, fair question. Um, so I think one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to do a sufficient number of you know, samples uh, to make sure that our own impressions of the nuns were, you know, correct. Um, I, as I said, being somebody who, who was myself a former nun who knew other nuns, um, I had certain impressions, but I didn't want to just presume that I was correct. So we wanted to make sure that we screened enough nuns that we really had a clear sense of, well, what is the spectrum really like? Is it that half are atheists or 90 percent are atheists or something? Or is it is it a bit different than that? And so uh, our goal was to screen, do, do a clear sampling so that by the time we were done, we had a clear sense of what the spectrum was and then begin to pick representatives who would, um, when brought together, uh, this group of seven would be as representative as we could make it of, of the whole of what we had encountered. So uh, really here, a lot of heavy lifting uh, on the ground was done by Josh Lowry, who was the associate producer on the project. And he was he's just somebody who is is really great at going and just talking to somebody who he's never met before. (laughs) And so he went out and um, uh, went to go find nuns in any number of ways. He would he would do anything from Craigslist ads and people can call him to word of mouth. Do you know anybody who fits this category? But Josh would also do things like go to an open mic night and uh, <laughs> sign up to go on stage and introduce himself and as, as an associate producer on this project and, and talk about what the project is, describe what the nuns are, and uh, if anybody fits that category to come over and talk to him. Uh, and so he would just pre-screen any number of folks. I mean, over, I'm, I'm sure he pre-screened well over 50 uh, candidates for the film. And what he would do is he would keep essentially files on them where he had certain, uh, he had certain basic questions that he was supposed to ask them uh, that I had supplied. And he would uh, take a photo and jot down notes throughout the interview. And then he'd bring uh, all of his findings to me and I'd sit down, I'd say, yes, no, maybe. Uh, And then I would begin to do a second round of screening. And that was really, uh, it was eye opening because we started to see what sort of patterns emerge when you begin to talk with uh, the nuns. Uh, We started to see common patterns about their parents. Oftentimes one parent is religiously devout, one opts out of religion at some point and was never really into it in the first place, so it seems. Um, We we just, various patterns like that, the problem of evil being a consistent issue that came up with them as far as an intellectual concern. Uh, So once we started getting a sense for what the spectrum was, how many are atheists, how many aren't, um, how many people self-identify as spiritual or agnostic or whatever, then we started to basically assemble, do the puzzle pieces of if we had to pick seven, who could we pick in order to accurately represent this group? Uh, And we wanted to have a variety of, um, you know, ethnicity, gender, uh, ages and so on, uh, as well as while also preserving the spectrum of atheist, agnostic, spiritual, whatever it may be. 
and so um, so that was really the goal, and that was the process, how we ended up with our, our select uh, seven nuns, and I suppose eight if you throw me in there, but uh, mm. me, me being the former nun, right? Right, right, and that's that was an interesting choice in my mind that, you know, you did screen, you know, 50 nuns, and you assembled seven of them that, you know, uh, sort of together, you know, tell this complex story uh, of this sociological religious phenomenon. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, you know, we get the character Basil. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had to look this up on IMDb. <laughs> I'm not that smart. Uh, that's you. That's Nathan Jacobs. Yeah. That um, is me, yeah. And I'll let, you, I'll let you, you know, tell the story of, you know, baptismal names and things like that. Uh, but as you do, tell our listeners this as well. I mean, instead of looking for, you know, uh, four nuns and four who have remained religious, uh, mm-hmm. you auditioned and cast nuns, but then you set your own story as a counterpart to them. So mm-hmm. what, what was the process in, you know, coming to that structure rather than some other, you know, combination of, of, of former believers and former unbelievers and so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, it's a fair question. So, uh, my own story is so if uh, anybody is familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy, when you are, you know, baptized and chrismated, received into the church, you have a patron saint and you take that saint's name. So in my case, my patron saint's name is Basil of Caesarea, mm-hmm. uh, Basil the Great. Uh, and so when I take the Eucharist uh, in the Orthodox Church, I am uh, Basil. And the reason I chose to do that is because the film. Uh, itself, uh, and uh, you know, it has a very specific structure, which I'm happy to talk about if if you'd like to. But yeah, by all means, uh, it it has uh, a chiastic structure to it. So intentionally, uh, there is this descent ascent uh, structure to the overall narrative, uh, with that key point right right there where the the turn happens, being my encounter with Athanasius uh, of Alexandria, and the beginning of the Eastern Fathers. And as a nod to the very fact that that becomes this sort of turning point in the overall narrative, I actually decided to go by my patron saint's name, uh, Basil, uh, again, indicating ultimately where this, when this turn point happens, um, this hinge in the story happens, uh, where it ultimately leads. Um, and I actually chose even for all the Eastern fathers I mentioned that I ended up reading in my studies. Uh, I never mentioned Basil. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's only mentioned as my, you know, as my name. And so that's a very intentional way of, of sort of highlighting uh, that crucial moment uh, in my overall narrative. Um, and so that that's what was going on there as far as the overall choice to sort of place the nuns in dialogue with my own story. One of the things that I think is important to understand about the nuns, and this was this was something that just became uh, was reaffirmed over and over and over again in our screenings. Uh, I get the impression, again, going back to this sort of um, new atheist uh, religious reaction that says, mm-hmm. okay, 25% must be becoming atheists, the new atheists are winning or something like that. Uh, what I tend to think um, is that looking at the nuns, my impression is not that there is one side of the apologetics argument that's that's winning, you know, that that the religious folks are losing and the uh, atheist apologists are winning or something like that. My impression is that both sides of that discussion are losing the audience. Uh, 
so when I look at the new atheists and I look at your average sort of evangelical apologist, I see both as uh, byproducts of the Enlightenment in many ways. Uh, not to get too academic with this, but um, when right, I look... It's the Christian humanist. Get as academic okay, as you okay, want. I'll get as academic as I want. <laughs> so um, I just wrote an article for the journal uh, Open Theology, which was um, my contribution. It was a special issue on religious epistemology. Mm-hmm. And so um, in my contribution, what I did is I contrasted Western Enlightenment views of divine revelation, special revelation, uh, how God reveals and speaks uh, in uh, Western modernity uh, with uh, the Eastern Christian writers from Irenaeus up through Gregory Palamas, which is about a 12 mm-hmm. year span. Uh, and one of the things that I find so remarkable is in the Western modern uh, approach to revelation, there is a great deal of uniformity in terms of how special revelation is uh, is understood. It's basically that uh, God shows up, uh, he appears to the eyes or to the ears or something, to somebody who, by virtue of God showing up to them as a prophet or a messenger, uh, he gives them a message, and then he agrees to perform miracles to validate that person as a prophet. And um, and then because the prophet speaks for God, if the miracles are validated, uh, then we can go ahead and we can be uh, assured that this prophet speaks, you know, the words of God. And because God cannot lie and he's omniscient, we can trust everything he says. And that's why the debates uh, around that all center around evidentialist questions of can we verify the accounts of miracles? And so even when people like David Hume or Spinoza, for example, are attacking miracles, they're not attacking miracles just as a general religious thing to be attacked. Part of the attack is the fact that they are well aware that that The miracles provide the evidence for embracing divine revelation. Uh, So so divine revelation itself being a miracle, that's something to be attacked. But um, also the the supporting miracles that validate the prophet are something to be attacked. And um, and in many ways, when you look at those sorts of discussions that are going on uh, between Locke and Hobbes and Hume and Spinoza on all the way into Kant and Fichte, uh, they they very much mirror the same discussions that happen between atheists and uh, evangelical apologists to this day. And yet, um, when I look at, for example, in that article, uh, when I look at how the uh, Christian East, uh, the Eastern Church Fathers, uh, write about special revelation, it's an entirely different framework, um, very, very different framework. Uh, now, I don't need to go into the differences to make this point, but where where I'm going with this is, is to say that um, I don't think that the nuns are children of the Enlightenment. I think the disconnect mm. is not that uh, um, the atheists have lost the argument or won the argument or that the evangelicals have lost the argument or won the argument. I think that the entire way they're approaching the argument and the discussion they're having is one that the nuns disconnect from generally. So it's not that one has won the argument or lost the argument, it's that both sides have lost the audience. And that's why I think the nuns find themselves a bit as a ship at sea, because um, the religious background they come out of is a background that all it really knows is how to have that discussion. Mm-hmm. So when they say, I, I don't resonate with this approach, not just to religion, but to the entire world. Uh, I don't think they process uh, things about the world the same way 
that approach does, uh, they're, they're a bit without a rudder because the folks that they're talking to, their parents, their pastor, whoever, um, are folks who do look at the world in that way. And in my own case, this is where uh, discovering uh, Eastern writers uh, was so important in my own journey, because they started offering arguments and perspectives and ways of approaching the world and looking at things that were expansive beyond your typical sort of Enlightenment approach to apologetics or religion or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that right there, when I look at the nuns, one of the things that I see is I think the nuns are really looking for, it's not just that they're looking for new arguments. It's not mm. that they're looking for new evidence. They're looking for a way of approaching and looking at the world that is different than the Western experience they've been introduced to in their youth. That was true for me. Um, it's true for the majority of folks that we screened for the project. And that's why um, I put my story out there, because my story ultimately does lead in a movement away from West uh, into the East, which I think is part of what's going on with the nuns. Mm -hmm. Let me ask a follow up on that, because the figures that you named, you know, as the sort of groundwork for uh, the Western atheist-theist debates, I mean, tend to start at about the Reformation and go sure. towards the present. Uh, mm -hmm. The figures that you named on the Eastern side, I mean, you know, start with the second century and go up to about the 12th. Right. Um, you know, I don't want to put these words in your mouth, but mm -hmm. I mean, the way that you framed up that narrative, I mean, uh, is there anything from the most recent 900 years you know, other than Vladimir Lossky and, you know, mm. David Bentley Hart that you would claim sure. as, you know, something that Christians should pay attention to? Well, I have to admit, I have a, I have the sort of C.S. Lewis-like bias that if I have to pick between reading an old book or a new book, I read an old book. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, our, our listeners can, can tell you that I resonate with that, so keep rolling. <laughs> so I do, I do tend to have that bias. I also do um, tend to see... One of the one of the things um, about the East is it it has a history of being resistant um, to innovation. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is so fascinating is, you know, in the same years that Kant is working on um, religion within the boundaries of mere reason, you have right. other folks or pure reason uh, at any rate. Yeah, uh, you have um, you have this this entire other trajectory going on in the East where the goal is to, you know, reassemble texts, um, on patristic epistemology and, you know, mm -hmm. in order to make sure that that, that, uh, ancient tradition is not lost. And that, so, so you see this, uh, rather than the embrace of this innovation, you see this resistance to it and this desire to continually go back and uh, embrace a new right tradition in the living sense of it being, uh, re-embraced and lived out uh, in the contemporary folks, uh, the older, the older way, the older um, that the things handed down, and so in in that way, I suppose it's not that I I would say that Lossky doesn't have anything to offer. You could pick up uh, Lossky's Divine Vision book mm -hmm. and read about all the very same things that I talk about in my article from Irenaeus up through Gregory Palamas. Um, but I, I suppose that's just it, is that when I look at it, I say there's a cohesive, what I see there is a cohesive tradition, which is one of the things that shocked me about it and drew me to it, is this uh, cohesive tradition that seems to be 
um, preserved and it doesn't seem to innovate or erode or splinter off or whatever it may be. Um, and so one of the reasons I suppose I don't see it as necessary to go past Gregory Palamas is not because uh, that tradition ends there, but because it would be in many ways redundant to just sort of press on beyond that. Um, okay. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I want to talk a little bit about the the backdrop for these interviews, because, uh, you know, as I, I hinted at earlier, my whole family is from southern Indiana, coal country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, the, the structure in which these interviews take place, uh, you know, reads very local for me. I mean, this is where, sure. you know, my, my cousins and my grandparents live. Um, first of all, where did you conduct these interviews and how important was the Kentucky feel of it relative to the need <laughs> to tell a more generally American or even right. more broadly Western story? Right. Well, I, I have to admit that in many ways, the decision to make it a Kentucky-based film was largely due to budget constraints. Okay, fair uh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, given budget constraints, we had to sort of keep things local. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that was helpful given that I live in Kentucky at the present. I'm not from Kentucky originally. I'm from the Chicago area. But, oh, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, currently being at Kentucky um, because of the University of Kentucky here was uh, what brought me over here. Uh, that's that's that was the the reason for the constraint. Now I do think, and this is this is something that I'll say. I I don't want to say this is a strike against the film, but I do think it's an interesting question that it raises. I do wonder because you know most of our folks that we interviewed are all Midwestern, so they're not mm-hmm. all Kentucky folks, but they are all, all these sort of Midwest folks. Um, and and in that sense, I do wonder how. The interviews with the nuns would change if we had, say, uh, done our sampling in California, yeah. you know, around mm-hmm. L.A., uh, or did our sampling in New York City. Or in Miami, uh, guess, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So my guess is that what you would find is that the nuns uh, sort of change as a species. Right? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> if, you, if you change where you're doing it. Uh, so I do think Becoming Truly Human offers really sort of an insight into the Midwestern phenomena of nuns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that sense, it is it is a sort of local sampling and that what it looks like beyond that um, would be different. And I'm sure it would be different if we went, you know, to places in Europe or if we went to, you know, South Africa or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, so I, I don't want to suggest that Becoming Truly Human offers some sort of definitive portrait of every nun everywhere at all times or something like that. Okay. It is definitely local. Um now, as for uh, the Kentucky base, I, I think that's really just sort of true, true to my own story uh, as, as far as where I am right now. And it did provide a, a great backdrop uh, for a lot of what we were talking about. But mm-hmm. budget constraints. <laughs> well, well, like I said, I mean, the, the visual feel of the film was very familiar for me. Uh, you know, the, my uh, Hoosier in exile in the deep <laughs> south. Um mm-hmm. But I want to turn to one of the particular interviews, namely with Joshua, the scientific researcher. So your interviews with the nuns, I I want to preface by saying uh, they were intentionally non-confrontational in character. Uh, I don't fault the film for not, you know, interrogating people's positions. Mm -hmm. But now that you and I are talking, I mean, to what extent do you find his story of diminishing certainty and experimental agnosticism Mm-hmm. compelling intellectually and to what extent do you think your viewers will find will resonate with it will find it compelling 
yeah. or I mean, honestly, is Joshua's argument beside the point? I mean, is the focus mainly on his story? Yeah. Well, in many ways, yeah. I mean, the, I, I think for folks who want some sort of blow by blow apologetic tour de force or something like that, mm-hmm. that's not what they're going to get. No, in that's fact, not what this film is. Yeah. Not, not even remotely. I mean, it's, as you'd mentioned, it's intentionally non-confrontational. Mm-hmm. The goal is really more to humanize uh, the nuns and make them real people with real stories. And in many ways, um, to show the diversity amongst them by putting them in dialogue with each other. So you'll notice, as I'm sure you did, that in the roundtable discussions, not that there's a roundtable there, but in the roundtable discussions where I'm with them and facilitating a dialogue, I never offer input. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the only voices that never makes any sort of direct affirmation. Uh, And so all the diversity comes from amongst the nuns themselves. Uh, and so in that sense, I suppose it's, it really is, it is in many ways beside the point, um, whether or not, uh, Joshua's, you know, position is intellectually persuasive or not. But I do find these things, um, I do find these things interesting. Uh, I've, I've found them very helpful and, and insightful just in their own right to observe, uh, without sort of any reaction against, um, uh, you know, Joshua as an as an example. Well, let me give a, a simpler example, and then I'll return to Joshua since you asked about him in in particular. Mm-hmm. Emily was somebody uh, who you mentioned, uh, who reminds you of a lot of folks, and sure. and there's there's an aspect of Emily's story in there where she says at one point when she's talking about her moving away from religion, she says um, uh, she talks about the problem of evil and her uncles uh, dying in horrible ways and her pressing her mom on the question of why would God allow this to happen? And, uh, and the answer coming back, well, he has his reasons. You just need to trust him. And Emily's saying, well, why? Right. And, and, you know, they're not really being a very good answer to why uh, she should trust him. And yet later when uh, it comes to religious beliefs, uh, she says, well, I definitely believe in karma, fate, things happen for a reason, mm-hmm. which uh, is ironic, right? Because we've just heard that it was the question of whether <laughs> the idea that things happen for a reason was just so untenable. That's what led her away from religion in the first place. But she believes that things happen for a reason. Uh, and I think rather than sort of chuckling at Emily for that and saying, well, see, self, self, <laughs> that's self-referentially incoherent, you know, that we, we have a problem here. Um, I think there's a nuance there that probably Emily hasn't herself reflected on. Um, but one of the things that I, I've just noticed in thinking about these sort of things, uh, uh, I think I think there's probably good reason why Emily s- still thinks that. Um, and I think it's because she's moved away from an anthropomorphic deity. So she believes in a vague ha- higher power and karma and fate are impersonal, right? It's mm-hmm. more like a principle of physics. So there is no person that you have to look to and say, why didn't you step in and stop this? Because you could. Uh, That's what she couldn't embrace from what her mom was saying about the problem of evil. Uh, Karma offers a way, though, to still say that things, uh, you know, justice is served, things shake out in the end. uh, But there's no person to be blamed for that. Um, And so what you see there that I think is interesting uh, is that you see these nuances coming through in their their thinking as you pay attention to these things and note, okay, so Emily still wants the world to have meaning, things to have purpose, for justice to somehow be served, which she can't 
get her mind around is the idea of an anthropomorphic deity who could have done that now, but didn't. Uh, so that's helpful. That's that's a very helpful insight, you know, in terms of understanding what's going on in her mind and why she's moving away from uh, sort of, uh, you know, Baptist or whatever it was that she was raised in um, and is now in this sort of vague spiritual space mm-hmm. with uh, Eastern influences, uh, not Eastern Orthodox, uh, but Eastern religious influences. Now, as for Joshua, I think Joshua is an interesting case because in many ways, Joshua is the minority report amongst the nuns uh, because Joshua is the pretty strongly leaning atheist uh, materialist. Uh, and and I have to admit that when we screened 50 some odd nuns, you know, 50 plus nuns, however many it was, um, really, I would say only two self-identified as atheists. Joshua was one of those. Okay. Uh, and so in, in many ways, it's, it's, this is where Joshua represents an outlier relative to what we found. Uh, and, and so now as for his arguments, I mean, I, I think, I think Joshua, um, I mean, I have my own views on, on the deficiencies of scientific materialism. Um, mm-hmm. since this is the Christian humanist and we're okay with going academic, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll divulge uh, that I am a uh, I'm a philosophical realist, so mm-hmm. um, I have uh, Platonic and Aristotelian tendencies in the sense that I believe that categories of mind refer to real properties of the world uh, that are identified and abstracted because they're there. Uh, they're not imposed on the world as in anomalous case. Uh, and so I, I do think one of the deficiencies of scientific materialism, uh, at least in a reductionistic model, is that it doesn't pay attention to the fact that it's using universals. It's imposing general nouns. So um, if, for example, we argue, offer an argument that says, uh, you know, this clearly looks to be a fused DNA strand because what we find here are two telomere who are fused together. And what telomere typically are is uh, the terminus of a DNA strand. So the fact that in the middle there are two of these and they're conjoined uh, indicates that this was once two separate DNA strands. The entire argument presumes um, certain uh, presumes a nature, right? There's an abstract mm-hmm. nature such as a telomere. It has a final cause, which is to be the terminus of DNA strand. Um, and unless you embrace those sort of realist categories, the argument doesn't work. Um, uh, without that, it just becomes um, what would be uh, a form of it would basically be a movement from an I claim to an A claim, some, you know, some P is Q, therefore all P is Q, which would be mm-hmm. an invalid logical movement. So um, while I'm all pro-science, I'm pro-science with a realist framework. But once you embrace realist framework, you're no longer a strict, uh, you're no longer an empiricist. Right, because, because there really- are transcendental right. realities, and- right? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's why I was curious about Joshua, because, I mean, in the film, as soon as he is off the... Uh, off the screen, uh, you reflect on your own sense that, you know, and I'm quoting a line from the movie here, quote, the, the mm-hmm. world derives its existence from something else, end quote. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I, I found that interesting that, you know, you go from the uh, the scientific materialist, you know, whose arguments are all empirical, mm-hmm. I mean, straight into a transcendental claim. Right. So, I mean, what, what I, I have to assume that was intentional, Yes. Well, uh, it's at least intentional in the sense that, uh, well, you're, you're absolutely right that everything in the film is woven together the way it is intentionally, right? Mm-hmm. So my, 
So you'll notice any careful viewer, which uh, it seems that you are a careful viewer, <laughs> uh, will notice that um, the nuns will talk about something, then I'll talk about the same something, yeah. I'll talk mm -hmm. about something, they'll talk. So they'll talk about um, fretting over, you know, uh, Laurel will talk about fretting over the afterlife, the round table will talk about um, questions of the afterlife being something that troubles them, and then you we encounter the part of my story where I talk about that in my own uh, in my own journey. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and one of the things is that, that this is, and I think this is an, uh, another one of these interesting, uh, this is actually an interesting contrast. Well, I would say 70% somewhere around there of my story parallels the story of the other nuns. Uh, you see lots of same interests, lots of same, uh, things irking me about religion, lots of same mm -hmm. questions. One of the contrasts that I think you see between me and them is that for most of them, uh, they come from an environment where questions were not welcome, right? Uh, yeah. And they didn't have anyone to come to. Whereas in my experience, and this is one of the early contrasts you see between me and them, I come from a family where debate about religion and politics, pounding of tables, arguing with each other back and forth, that was normal. Uh, that was perfectly acceptable. And that was just good dinner table conversation, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, which was foreign to their experience. And so, uh, unlike so many other places in the film where there are those parallels, them fretting over the afterlife, me fretting over the afterlife, uh, that's one of those early contrasts, uh, that, uh, that what it means uh, how significant it is uh, to where I ended up versus where they're at presently, I don't know. Uh, but that is undoubtedly a contrast that I couldn't really gloss over. Yeah. Um, and, and it was ultimately because of those sorts of debates that I was already attuned very early on to these sort of transcendental arguments. Uh, and, and the argument from uh, basically some sort of sufficient cause from contingency was something that I always just circled back to. And and frankly, I, I think it's an argument that no one really rejects. I think even scientific empiricists, supposedly atheist empiricists, still embrace it because ultimately they just trace it to something else. You know, they mm -hmm. trace it to this immutable, um, you know, incorruptible, eternal energy that's beneath things or something like that. Uh, ultimately, uh, although some of them aren't nearly that careful. Let's not give right. the new atheists too much credit. Oh, I'm not suggesting the new atheists. Oh, OK, uh, OK, OK. <laughs> But I, I'm just suggesting that that even um, even when folks try to say, well, we're not going to get into these sorts of uh, theological, metaphysical issues, there's still this something that pushes them toward at some point the chain of contingency has to land someplace. Mm -hmm. uh, and they they land. And, and this is what I think is interesting about somebody like Spinoza, right? Spinoza, even though he's charged with being an atheist. Ultimately, you know, his, his ethics begins by defending the ontological argument for the existence of God. Right. Um, atheism for Spinoza was that he was a pantheist, right, that, uh, mm -hmm. that he conflated God and world. And I think in many ways, if a lot of the supposedly scientific atheists were more uh, consistent, they would be pantheists as well, given some of their claims of where they ultimately land. It's just that Spinoza was sophisticated enough to understand that, and this all men call God as the punchline. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what he was going to say about the cosmos. Right. Well, I mean, you and I have been, you know, tossing back and forth some philosophy. You know, I'm, I, I did my graduate school in English and you in philosophy, but we're both readers. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that interests me about Basil's narrative is that you found in Orthodox worship in ways that you hadn't in evangelical worship strong mm-hmm. influences from the very philosophical Greek patristic theologians. Mm-hmm. Now, as you see things, uh, is that anti-philosophical stance of evangelicalism insurmountable, or could evangelicals learn some respect for philosophy without ceasing to be evangelicals? Yeah. Um, it's, I, I'm always hesitant to speak to other people's traditions, you know, even mm-hmm. though I, I lived in the evangelical world. Well, I'm I, giving you the I, green I, light here, Nathan. Right. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> but... Um, but uh, I mean, really, in a, in a true sense, I've always seen myself as an outsider of evangelicalism, and in mm-hmm. that's and and so I can't really speak from an insider's perspective. Um, maybe I, I think the better way to approach it would be to redirect in some way to to something that was really a question that I think troubled me about evangelicalism, but goes to the same sort of the issue. Um, one of the things that, in my experience, sort of trying to carve out a space for myself in evangelicalism, just because I, I just I, I was married to an evangelical, um, I had I, I knew that I, I had, had jobs in evangelical you know schools from time to time, and I just mm-hmm. if I could find a way to live there, it would have been valuable to me. You know, I was trying to figure out a way to make that fit. Um, but one of the things that was my experience there was that it seemed to me that I could never nail down what evangelicalism was. Okay. And, uh, it, it appeared, and, and, and so just by way of example, um, I, uh, it seemed that there were in some ways arbitrary boundary lines being drawn. Uh, I remember back when there was, um, you know, this big debate about open theism going on amongst mm-hmm. evangelicals, um, which to me, I thought, oh, well, that's, int-, you know, I, I, full disclosure, I never really say this in the film, but you see it in my books. Um, I was a process philosopher. Mm-hmm. So, um, so when I heard the evangelicals are disputing, you know, the question, bantering back and forth about the question of whether or not God might know the future or whether, you know, those sorts of issues, I thought, oh, good, you know, because I was already well beyond that in terms of, mm-hmm. of my sort of uh, my my view of, of the deity. And um, and it was surprising for me to see just how heated that discussion got, you know, people losing jobs and sure, declaring Clark heretics. Sure, being and, driven out from right, the evangelical right. theological society. Mm-hmm. Right, Have it, holding some sort of vote where, you know, they can't be members or some sort of thing. Yeah. And yet what was surprising to me as somebody who was uh, trained in historical, was focusing on historical theology, right? I was, I was looking at the history of ideas and, and doing that in conjunction with theological writers. Um, one of the things that I thought was so peculiar is I thought, well, um, there are writers that I knew of who would take a, say, temporalist position with regard to the deity. God is in time, right, rather mm-hmm. than temporal. And I thought, well, how is that any less, you know, how is that any more traditional or is sort of any less beyond the pale of traditional, you know, sort of metaphysics of divinity uh, than not knowing the future? Um, You know, the the same, the very same arguments that would be used uh, against odd temporality would be the same arguments used against sort of this, um, this sort of notion of divine foreknowledge. So from a metaphysical perspective, one of the things that I found strange was it seemed that there was this arbitrary um, use of the word heresy. 
and so one of the things that I thought was so weird was it seemed that there was no clear boundary lines to what evangelical is and was. It almost struck me more like a theological um, sort of Nietzschean will to power. Whoever mm. uh, has whoever has the uh, whoever has the podium and can rally enough troops and sort of get the sway of whatever the universities or the publications or whatever it is determines what the orthodoxy is. And one of the things that I found so troubling about that was that I started asking the question, is Christianity something or is it nothing? And what I mean by that is, is it just a blank slate into which, you know, it's this empty bag that we can put in whatever we want and take out whatever we want? Or is it actually uh, something with very clearly defined boundary lines? Now, I, as somebody who is very much out in the process side of things, process philosophy, panentheist, all that sort of stuff, I really wanted it to be a blank slate because I was already doing whatever I wanted to it. Um, and and yet, um, from within, and and when I looked at evangelicalism from the outside, I said I don't see how there's any way to create firm boundary lines, uh, just because of the very sort of phenomena that I, I was just describing. Um, now. I will say, so, you know, uh, uh, that sort of becomes a positive and a negative uh, for answering your question. On the one hand, I see evangelicalism as something that's so fluid and so pliable um, and so much of a blank slate that hypothetically, sure, anything could be grafted into it. Mm -hmm. uh, it could embrace uh, sort of more neoplatonic uh, trends of thought and so on. But at the same time, I have to admit that even when it does that, I'm, I'm not sure I understand what evangelicalism really is, or what the term really means, what its boundary lines really are, and whether it really has those anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's, 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 my honest, <laughs> that's my honest assessment of it. No, that's fine. I mean, you, you are naming a lot of the questions that I spend my time thinking about, you know, teaching at an evangelical college as I do, uh, and, you know, guiding students into... Uh, you know, Dante and into the Athenian tragedies and, you know, mm -hmm. into platonic dialogues and things like that, right. uh, you know, to what extent am I leading them into a better version of what evangelical, evangelicalism, pardon me, is, and to mm -hmm. what extent am I making them something other than evangelical? And you're right, I sure. mean, because it is a sociological category as much as, as it is theological, uh, it mm -hmm. makes it very fluid. Uh, right. and, and it's interesting too, uh, and you know, this is a complete rabbit trail. We'll get back to your movie in a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, especially in the last, uh, actually we're coming up on 12 months now where mm -hmm. the famous statistic that, you know, 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump or 81% mm -hmm. of, is it white evangelicals or just evangelicals? Either way, you know, the fact that so many of my counterparts are saying, mm -hmm. you know, I'm no longer calling myself that. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it raises a question for me, you know, should I continue myself <laughs> to, you know, self-refer that way? And sure. right, right now, the best answer I've got is, you know, yes, because when people underestimate what evangelicals can do and what they can think, it lets me, uh, get the element of surprise on them. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so that's, right. that, that's about what I've got. That's about what I've okay. got. <laughs> well, enough. Nathan, I, I want to talk about Eric some more because I love Eric. Uh, Eric resonated with me in ways that the other nuns in your movie didn't, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps because my own family there in Southern Indiana is a lot more Eric than it is Tyler or Emily. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about his story and about the nuns who least fit 
the stereotype that I often hear that, 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 you know, the unaffiliated spiritual, but religious spiritual, but not religious phenomenon is this sort of, you know, West coast thing, or it's a new England thing, or, you know, it's something like that. Eric Mm -hmm. couldn't be more East Kentucky. and He's one of your nuns. Tell me Eric's story. So Eric is a, a very interesting character. Um, I mean, in many ways, these these interviews that are cut down to you know two minutes or whatever each of these sort of private narratives are mm-hmm. cut down to, um, you know, they're much longer. And having gotten to know the different characters, they have the, their stories are much larger and more robust and interesting mm-hmm. than we can do justice to uh, in the time allotted. But Eric is somebody who. Um, he is raised in this sort of um, uh, this this Baptist background, and then he um, he ends up having uh, a number of encounters where early on, because he's you know he's a skater kid. I mean, we're we're talking to Eric now. I, I don't know exactly what Eric's age is, but he's no longer a skater kid. We'll just say that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. he's he's further along in years than that. But you know. He's this. He 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 relays these sorts of um, these experiences where it's quite clear that he just he does he just doesn't fit socially, and he's noticing some sort of sense of it. It, it almost seems like um, hypocrisy or betrayal or some something like that as a result. So he shared this one story. It doesn't this didn't make it into the film, but where he's out skateboarding and he's not causing any trouble, but you know, some Baptists come up to him uh, and they start trying to uh, evangelize him and the other kids, because clearly they need to be evangelized because they're mm-hmm. out late at night skateboarding. And, um, and Eric recognizes one of them and, uh, <laughs> and it's a guy from his church, but the guy doesn't let on that he knows Eric. And there's sort of this like um, embarrassment or, you know, they want to be associated with, with this guy. And it was those sorts of experiences that made Eric just feel like an outsider, like he doesn't fit. Um, and so he, 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 tries, uh, he tries on Pentecostalism. And as he puts it, this is not me passing my own judgment on Pentecostals. Mm. But he says— uh, By the way, I'm a professor uh, at a Pentecostal school, so okay, okay. just for the sake of disclosure. <laughs> right. okay, I, so. I am also not a Pentecostal, but okay. they, uh, they tolerate me here. Right. So uh, Eric said something like— um, he says something like uh, it talks about how they the Pentecostals were really warm and nice, or at least they seem so on the outside. They were nastier on the inside, was what he what Yikes. he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it was one of these things where he's sort of he's intrigued by the sort of Pentecostal spiritualism. Eric definitely had spiritualist tendencies in the sense that he wants to have experiences. <clears throat> it wasn't just doctrine for him. And so he's drawn into things like speaking in tongues and those sorts of, of things that are, are being uh, talked about and um, in the in the Pentecostal world. And so he delves into there. But again, there's sort of social dynamics that are, are difficult for him as well. Um, and and he begins to uh, toy around with uh, actually magic. So you'll you, you mm-hmm. may have noticed that he's doing card tricks at one point. Yeah. Uh, when, it, when we have this sort of B-roll going of him drinking and he's chatting with Emily and he's doing card tricks. So he started getting into magic, not in the uh, actual like black magic sense, but in just sleight of hand sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was shocked when uh, some some Pentecostals told him 
you know, that's demonic. You really need to stay oh, away heavens. from heavens <laughs> in response to one of his tricks. Uh, you know, he's, he's pulling a David Blaine or something like that, and they they think it's real. And, and so this becomes sort of uh, the beginning of the end in terms of his own disillusionment. And as you gather in the film, what happens is that Eric begins to do some research on his own. Uh, one of the things that really shook him up in terms of Christianity was uh, encountering the Jerusalem Bible and contrasting mm-hmm. that with James. And uh, basically his impression of the King James is that it just speaks to this sort of corrupted, edited version that's aimed at this power bent and things like that. And that becomes sort of a guiding narrative for him of what Christianity as a whole is, right? It's somehow uh, this corrupted tradition that has sort of developed over time and been molested in in the interest of uh, power plays. And so Eric begins to search outside of Christianity. He tries on Judaism. He tries on Islam. He toys with um, uh, Buddhism because he's into martial arts and things like that. And uh, he... He tries on yoga, the religion, not the you know exercise mm-hmm. <laughs> side of it. Uh, and anyway, what what happens is that you see that Eric is authentically searching for some sort of spiritual experience um, and some sort of grounding in reality. And he and he puts it rather point, pointedly because he actually says it was it was like being debased entirely to think that, you know, he didn't have a reality to cling to. So it wasn't, you know, he was, he, as he also puts it, he was terrified. I mean, absolutely terrified at the thought that perhaps um, the cosmos as he knew it was, was not what he thought it was. So this sort of losing of his religion and sense of Christianity throws him into this sort of peril and the search for something. And where he ends up, you know, landing is as somebody who leans atheist now, but um, can't really fully discount the idea of of God. Um, his inkling is that if God exists, he's probably more like the deist, you know, God mm-hmm. who is not uh, personally involved in, in the cosmos. And, you know, and that's Eric. And when you talk with him, you get the sense that, you know, he still, he still reads, he still thinks about things. And in many ways, I, I do think there is a, a certain amount of openness in Eric. I mean, he... We were having drinks uh, together at some point um, after the filming was done and just listening to him talk. And he started talking about the harrowing of Hades and how intrigued he was by that story. And, you know, maybe that's the sort of thing that if if he ever believed in Christianity, he could believe in something like that. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and so you find that there's still this openness to Eric, even though he talks like he thinks more or less his journey is over. Yet he can't discount things entirely, and so on. But okay. yeah, well, I want to ask about that continuing journey because at moments during this film, I thought that Basil's story was an implied next chapter into which the nuns might enter. But mm-hmm. then sometimes I thought that Basil's story involved so much philosophical thought that mm-hmm. it was so idiosyncratic that the nuns simply wouldn't have access to a conversion experience like his, like yours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as you imagine things, is Basil the sequel to Kristen, or are they just <laughs> different ways of being that will keep diverging, or is something else going on here? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and the reason I think it's great is is because I do sometimes wonder. I I would I, in many ways I tried to I tried to say at the outset of the film and at the close of the film, look, I'm not putting my story forward here as some archetype to be imitated. Mm-hmm. Um, I am I am. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not a role model. All right. Uh, uh, but I, I do, and I do think in many ways, because the nuns tend to be idiosyncratic, just because they're all religiously unaffiliated doesn't mean they're all uniform. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what the whole point of the round table was to say. Um, there is disagreement here, strong disagreement, but notice that it's not coming from me. <laughs> it's coming yeah. from the nuns disagreeing with mm-hmm. each other. Uh, and that's where I think each of them is idiosyncratic. Um, Kristen, for example, talks about wanting to experience it for herself and have hardcore evidence of it all. Well, what Kristen means by evidence, I think, is very different than what Joshua would mean by evidence. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Joshua means something scientific. Now, I don't know if Joshua has yet gotten to the point to realize that he's asking for something that is in many ways contradictory. I want a measurable God, but if I actually understand metaphysics, there are good reasons why God is identified as hyperousias or beyond being, or in that mm-hmm. sense, uncircumscribed, aperigraptos, whatever the term is you want. Um, so, But Joshua would mean something like that, some sort of scientific evidence. I don't think Kristen means that. Uh, I'm not sure Kristen knows what she means, But my impression is that Christian means some sort of religious experience, something that says, wow, I'm convinced this is real. Um, I don't think she means analytic evidence that somehow the highest being uh, necessarily exists by ontological necessity, you know, or something like that. I absolutely don't think that means. Um, And yet I would say that Eric would probably be somebody who would be open to argument, and exploration. I mean, he did a lot of reading, a lot of exploration. Um, and so that's where I would say, uh, Basil's story, my story is idiosyncratic. Yes. Um, but I would say that's probably true for all seven of them. If you were to stretch out their story 10, 15 years, and we find that like Basil, they end up finding a home someplace. Um, when we look at those stories, my guess is each one of those would be idiosyncratic. Uh, the road mm-hmm. for Joshua would be very different than the road for Kristen, for example. Um, and yet I do think here's where here's where I think there is a, a certain level of commonality to them. And this is where I go back to the fact that I think there is a disconnect with the sort of traditional enlightenment approaches to looking at the world. Um, I'll just just to give you an example, um, one of the things that I found so fascinating uh, about the uh, the nuns was that they're all intrigued by religious spaces, right? Aesthetics, temples, art, architecture, things like that. That comes through in my story. That comes through in their story. And somehow that, the beauty of nature, these experiences are relevant, right? They take it to be relevant as, as part of their worldview, Um uh, I also found it was very fascinating to find when we did the pre-screenings of them uh, that so many of them are interested in the paranormal. <laughs> now, that mm-hmm. didn't come through the yeah. film at all. Uh, we cut it out because it would, just would have been an odd rabbit trail. Uh, but uh, I would say nearly 100% of the nuns that we talked to are fascinated with the paranormal. So they don't know oh, if God fascinating. exists. They don't know if God exists, but do ghosts exist? You betcha. Huh. Uh, and and yet for them, that's somehow disconnected from their approach to religion. Now, I don't think it should be. But here's one of those things that I, I think is going on. Um, uh, you know, I think, for example, of, I, I, I think to have a real authentic conversation with the nuns and and to see how their journey evolves, help them along in their journey, uh, whatever that would look like. 
I think it's probably going to it, it probably requires spending some time getting to know their own idiosyncrasies and um, in many ways uh, having conversations that aren't the conversations we're used to having. So, uh, for example, I think of in C.S. Lewis is this building on the paranormal inside, for example, C.S. Lewis in the problem of pain when he gives this genealogy of religion. All right. One of the things he does is he criticizes the proofs for ex the existence of God. Now, he never says in that criticism that they don't work on an analytic level. Mm -hmm. he, his criticism is that they have so little to do with how religion actually emerges historically. And he begins to make this case about the numinous, appealing to Rudolf Otto's work um, and talking about this, you know, this experience of the other, right? This sense that there is something here, that this place is haunted, whatever it may be. And um, as the birth of paganism and then, you know, the moral law being the dimension added when, when, when you get to Judaism. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is, you know, we don't really talk about the paranormal uh, <laughs> when, when and somebody says, like, well, why do you believe in God? It's, I, I, I've never heard anybody say, well, because I believe in ghosts, right, or something like that. So I think huh, there's a yeah. right. I've never heard that sort of thing come up. And mm -hmm. yet. Um, I do think it's relevant. If you believe that we as humans have just this inborn intuition that we can't shake, uh, that our world is haunted, mm -hmm. and you don't think that's a, an evolutionary malfunction, you think it's an authentic uh, intuition that tells you something true about the world because your faculties are rightly functioning, um, then that should be a point of discussion for saying, well, uh, if you believe those spirits exist, what other spirits uh, and, and that's not the conversation that we're accustomed to. Um, it's maybe not even a conversation we're comfortable having, but that's a conversation that might be the conversation Krista needs to have because mm -hmm. Kristen, I think does <laughs> believe in ghosts. Um, but Kristen doesn't draw a connection between that belief and religion, but maybe right. she should. Maybe she should. And when she says hardcore evidence of it all, she wants to believe it. I think what she means is something closer to I find myself believing in ghosts because at a gut level it hits me and I just can't not believe it. And I find myself believing these things are real. Um, so, again, all, all that's to say is that I think in many ways um, what each of them need and where their journeys go is is ultimately going to be idiosyncratic, and and in, and and so yes, my journey is an idiosyncratic, but I think they all would be, um, and it just becomes a question of what is the connecting point? What is what is the connecting point between them and religion? You know, very good, very good. Well, Nathan, I've well, been Nathan, at the I... wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want <laughs> you to have the last word. As we wrap up, what do you want our listeners thinking about the nuns, orthodoxy, filmmaking, or whatever else? Sure. Well, I appreciate that. Um, well, first, I, I would say that um, my main takeaway uh, when it comes to the nuns is to not be afraid of them. I don't think they're anything to fear. Um, in many ways, I think the nuns are helpful correctives to building a more fully-orbed um, anthropology. I do think any sort of approach to religion that really just treats us as uh, disembodied minds, uh, where all that matters is the premise leading to the conclusions, is a deficient anthropology. And so whenever we bring into the, the, um, the consideration of how we come to know the world and encounter the world, things like aesthetics, 
um, things like our intuitions about whether or not the cosmos might be haunted, um, uh, religious experiences, um, uh, as well as as well as following the arguments, I think we're moving in a good direction. Um, and so, in many ways, I think a lot of the things that the nuns uh, disconnect with from the religion of their youth. Uh, the reason I resonate that with them is because I disconnected with a lot of those things. But ultimately, in my own story, and this is why my story is there, um, that did not mean that I was a ship at sea in perpetuity. It meant that uh, those disconnects set me out on a journey that ultimately sort of led to someplace else, um, someplace that I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased it led me. Um, and so when I look at the nuns, I see them as folks who are searching. They have authentic experiences that have led them uh, in the direction that they're currently in. Uh, but I don't see them as folks who are, you know, dogmatic or have arrived at a destination. Uh, they're in process. They're looking for something. And I think in many ways what they're looking for, their instincts um, are are actually quite good. Uh, the things that they say they 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 disconnect with are things I also disconnect with. The things that they connect with, I also resonate with. And in many ways, those are the same sort of issues that ultimately led me uh, toward Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, so in that sense, I would say the nuns are nothing to fear. I'd also say that a, an important takeaway with regard to the nuns is exactly what I said about the idiosyncratic nature of their journey. Uh, because uh, the nuns are in many ways not interested in the conversation that most folks are accustomed to having, uh, the conversation that would take place between uh, your typical apologist in terms of evangelical and new atheists, I think what what's required in order to really engage the nuns is to do a good bit of listening uh, in order to find out, you know, what, what you know, what is it? that how do we need to change the conversation in order to properly engage them? And I gave that example with the paranormal just being one example. Um, I, I think a genuine engagement with this group, which is uh, growing, requires that we become, uh, um, we step out of our comfort zone and, and we open up to having the conversations that we're not accustomed to having. Uh, but figuring out what those conversations are actually require a good bit of listening and getting to know them and coming to understand uh, their way of thinking and not just approaching them like it's a chess mask match that's meant to be one, which is why I do so much active listening uh, in the film uh, to in some ways uh, embody what that begins to look like. Um, and uh, I, I'd say the last thing <laughs> that I would ask in this, this is sort of something I put out there, is that this is a sort of film that... Um, uh, it is, it's not the sort of film that has, you know, massive studio money behind it. And so it really only gets out there, um, and finds its audience and, uh, is useful to people. If the folks who view it and like it and think it's worth people's time are proactive in supporting it. And so for anybody who has, uh, sort of heard this conversation and is curious about it, I'd strongly recommend um, that they actually take the time to uh, see if there is a theater uh, near them where they can go see it. Uh, you can go to tugtugg.com, uh, and under the film tabs, find Becoming Truly Human. You click on that. That's where you can find a list of cities, and you can get your tickets. 
um, if there is a theater near you. And if not, be looking on digital platforms, Amazon, iTunes, whatever it may be for, um, for the film so that you can watch it. And, um, if it's the sort of film that you think is really worth supporting, do what you can in terms of, uh, sharing it with others, telling others, doing positive reviews online, uh, and, uh, supporting it in any way you can, because it really is the sort of project that only is going to make it into the hands of the people who, who, uh, need it. Uh, if the folks who like it, uh, take the effort to, to put it out there and endorse it. So. Nathan Jacobs, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode. I'll reiterate what Nathan said. Uh, this movie will be coming to a limited range of theaters on uh, November 9th. There will be links on the ChristianHumanist.org and on our social media presences uh, leading you to those, so I strongly encourage you to go out and see it. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>